Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 421. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 421 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer and studio manager at Infrasonic Mastering in Nashville, Raylan Janicki. Raylan's worked with The Shins, Hematite, J.R. Carroll, Kayla Hall, Talia Stewart, and Bazooka Tooth, to name a few. We're going to talk about all things mastering and running a mastering facility. Raylan Janicki. Coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to do a little personal catch up with you. Hey, Happy New Year to all of you. Hope this year in 2023 is fantastic for you. Let's cross our fingers. We don't have any more global pandemics. I vote for that. Had a great holiday. Spent the holiday in Michigan with my arch enemy, snow. God, I hate snow. I'm not a a, a skilled skier by any stretch. I've been skiing. It's fun. I like sledding, tubing, you know, all those snow-related things. But on a day-to-day level, driving and walking in snow just is bullshit. I am so over it. Yeah, it was good good to hang with family, but all too happy to get back to California to get inundated with rain. Man, we had some rain. Coming down like cats and dogs, as they used to say. Or do they still say that? I'm not sure. No leaks in in the root. Well, minor leak in the kitchen, actually, but not a major leak. Nothing, you know, life-changing. But yeah, a lot of, lot of rain coming down here in the Bay Area as I record this. Hey, good news. I ordered a new espresso machine. The backstory is, is many years ago, If you listen to old episodes, I might talk about a Jura coffee machine. I think it was an A9. Well, long story short, that shit the bed. Total piece of crap. Don't ever buy one. Just save yourself the money. As uh, the person I was talking to, the salesperson about getting a new coffee machine and getting his opinion, he was like, oh, those Juras. Yeah, those are like airport coffee vending machines, essentially. Didn't have anything good to say about it. But we had uh, been kind of gun-shy about the whole coffee machine buying experience because that Jura was a ton of money. And it lasted a bit, but then the repairs became a problem. And I just was too frustrated. So we just got rid of it. We took it to um, Urban Ore in Oakland and just dumped it on them. And maybe somebody smarter than me can grab it and fix it. But anyways, we've been... um, kind of dealing with uh, a short-term solution, which is an espresso machine, which, you know, it's one of those coffee pod machines and the pods are made of aluminum and you can send them in send them in to get them recycled. But it's, it, it's kind of an expensive way to do coffee. It's not very, um, not the most environmentally friendly way to do coffee, that's for sure. But we've been doing that and it's been, it's actually been about a couple of years since the Jura broke. Maybe it happened over COVID, I think. Anyways, my wife did some research and she found favorable reviews for this company called Breville. 
we went out New Year's Day to do a little hanging out in record stores and walking around downtown San Francisco. And I found myself in Williams-Sonoma and was looking at the coffee machines and wasn't intending to buy, but, you know, the sales guy came over and he said, what What are you thinking about? And I said, well, I'm just looking at my options. And he just immediately started pointing to machine after machine. And he was like, crap, crap, bullshit. Don't buy this. Don't buy this. These are good. This is good. I like this one. I own this one. And he went through them all. The one I pointed out to him that I was considering, he had said was a good machine. So we got a Breville Barista Express Impress Espresso machine. And I guess uh, the whole concept is, is, it's um, it's a great machine meant to give you that coffee shop kind of taste without having to, you know, pull out any mad barista skills. In other words, it, it gets the grind and the tamping and the amount of water flow, like all the all the details that a pro barista would know. It kind of automates a little bit of that or kind of assists you, doesn't automate it, it assists, tells you if you're doing well or not. So it, it arrives today as I record the, or I'm sorry, it arrives tomorrow. Looking forward to it. I cannot wait to consume all the coffee that guests and fans have sent into the show. And no, that's not a passive aggressive plea for you to send me coffee. Do not feel compelled to send me coffee. This is just, you know, gifts here and there that, that I've got from uh, people stopping into town and uh, saying hello, uh, who are fans of the show or have been on the show. New machine. We'll see how it goes. I'll give you my feedback on it uh, at another time after I've spent some time with it, drank a few cups of coffee and learned how it works. I've been, of course, watching a bazillion YouTube videos. Let's see what else is going on. Bit, bit more tracking these days for me. I kind of stopped tracking for a while. Uh, COVID really contributed to that, but also I've just been focusing on mixing, stereo mixing. And of course, you you know, at my Atmos journey, I've been Atmos mixing. You know, still doing a little mastering too. But I started doing some some more tracking recently, and it's fun. I have to admit, it's it's great to do it. But I must be honest with myself. I really prefer the act of mixing. It is truly an enjoyable thing to do. Tracking is all dependent on the people you're with, and if you're with great people, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's it's great to get out of the house and go to a nice studio and get stuff done. So I've been going over to Sharkbite Studios in Oakland recently. They've got a new Jeff Daking board, which has been awesome. And it's just such a huge improvement. They used to have a Trident TSM, I think. It was just a board that had served its time and it was time to get it out of there. And fortunately, uh, folks over at Sharkbite took care of that. So all that's been good. Bad news is, is at the top of November, I had my catalytic converter stolen. It is now January as I record this and I still do not have the car back because the, there's a back order on catalytic converters and I drive a Honda, so that's a popular catalytic converter to steal, I guess. So even though I drive an old car, some dude felt it was uh, his duty to steal my catalytic converter and make my uh, life a little more challenging. But, you know, good insurance goes a long way, so I've just been driving a rental car. Holy crap, what a pain in the ass. All right, so uh, New Year's, generally the time for resolutions. I'm trying to not do resolutions, but do habits. So really trying to pick up my reading, uh, not just audiobooks, but literally reading. So uh, first book I bought was Rules of Life. It's a whole series of books on rules, you know, rules of money, rules of people, rules of work, et cetera, et cetera. So I picked up Rules of Life. I prefer to read on, on a Kindle or an iPad in my case. 
uh, because I could just sit in one spot and scroll upwards and get the font set the way I want, get the black background with the white font, which my wife hates. She's a traditional book reader, but I was inspired by a, a, a news article I was reading about Mark Cuban, the, the bazillionaire. I don't know how much money he has. I just said bazillionaire. It's a dude with a lot of money. And he's one of those dudes with a lot of money that I actually kind of like and have, have, uh, have some respect for the things he's done. He was talking about the importance of reading and expanding your mind and your and your ideas. It's like walking. It's like you want to you want to get a good workout. Go walk, right? So reading is 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 a relatively um, inexpensive way to expand the mind. So I just made sure that I started off the year right and got this book. And yeah, every night, sometimes during the afternoon, I'll read thirty minutes to an hour, and really have been enjoying doing that. So. We'll see how I do with that in, in the new year. Uh, finally, um, spending a lot of time over the holiday season texting back and forth with my uh, former bandmate. I say former, even though technically, I guess we're still somewhat together. When I was, uh, I, you may have heard me mention the band that I was in uh, in my 20s, The Sextants, S-E-X-T-A-N-T-S. So Brennan, the singer, and I have been texting back and forth and and over the holiday and kind of dealing with the Sextant's back catalog and trying to figure out navigating, getting it on DistroKid and making sure everything's out there when it should. So that's been quite a joy. Uh, remastering some stuff, uh, mixing some stuff that never saw the light of day, remixing some stuff as well that was essentially demos that, you know, given a good mix can actually sound quite good. Mixing the two sides of the, of the glass there has been quite enjoyable. No intention of really playing drums per se, unless uh, it pertains to recording new material. But yeah, it's it's just, it's fun to go back to older stuff, knowing what I know now as an engineer and giving that stuff the treatment I think it deserves. And it's nice to you know walk that path as an artist as well. So that's, that's fun. So I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to the Sextant's Bandcamp page. You can have a gander at what we have there if you're interested in that. Obviously, that's not my main my main jam these days, but it's definitely a part of who I am. So be sure and check that out if you have the time. Uh, that's about it. Want to wish all of you Happy New Year again and just say uh, how much I really appreciate you uh, spending time with me each week. I'm always continually amazed at how many uh, emails I get from all of you. Uh, talking about how much you love the show and it means a lot. I really appreciate it. It's super cool that uh, the show continues to resonate with people. And of course I will continue to interview people because man, if uh, anything I've learned in the last six months to a year is that there is just so many more people to interview and there's a lot of good stories out there, a lot of good information and I'll continue to bring it to you. So that's it. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Raylan Janicki here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Raylan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. We've had like what seems like everybody from Infrasonic on the show, so it only seemed natural that you should be on as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to be doing it finally. I'm, I'm trying to have a complete collection here with everybody, <laughs> so... 
There are a lot of us. It's like collecting Pokemon cards. <laughs> it, it, that's exactly what it's like. I'll have to have a special section on the website dedicated to Infrasonic. It's like, I would love that. Have everybody. <laughs> so currently, you are a mastering engineer there at Infrasonic, and you're also the studio manager located in Nashville, Tennessee, for those that aren't following my whole Infrasonic path of interviews. We'll get into the details of that, but I just wanted to like lay the groundwork there for everybody. But let's talk about where you grew up. Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York in a little tiny town called Selkirk. And it's kind of in between like the Catskills and Albany, which is the capital. So not a ton to do there growing up. So it's kind of one of those things where it was like, as soon as I graduate high school, I'm out. Like I'm going to go somewhere else and follow some sort of dream that I have. And I did just that and I ended up here. So <laughs> good job. Thanks, man. So growing up, brothers or sisters? Yeah. So I have an older sister whose name is Ray Ann. So my whole family has Ray themed names. So my dad is Ray J. I'm Raylan J. My little brother is Raymond James and my sister is Ray Ann Jade. So anytime that I can just be Ray, I'm like, I'm taking full advantage of it. But anyway, I have an older sister and she is married and has two boys. And then I have a 15 year old little brother as well. He was born when I was 13. So that was pretty crazy growing up, but they're amazing. And I'm like, I cannot imagine a life without them now. Wow. Those names would get highly confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a struggle. And I never had my name on like a bookmark or a keychain or anything. So <laughs> wow. I got the fuzzy end of the lollipop there. <laughs> so music or technology, did it have any part of your upbringing? A hundred percent. So just like Pete, I grew up kind of in like the New York hardcore scene. So even before that, growing up, my parents are both metalheads. Their first time that they hung out was like at a Megadeth concert. And I grew up with a Dimebag Daryl cardboard cutout in my house growing up. <laughs> so music has always been a thing that has been in my family. My dad plays guitar. And then with my sister, she would go to hardcore shows in Albany all the time. And I would always tag along with her if I wasn't 16 and couldn't get in by myself. My dad would bring us to the shows. So he would just hang out in the back at the bar and my sister and I would be up in the pit, like watching and having a good time. And then when I was eventually old enough, her and I would just go by ourselves. So I feel like that gave me kind of like a sense of community that I didn't have in high school and stuff because it was like rural, you know, upstate New York town. But then you go and you experience something completely different. And it's outside of that like high school tunnel vision. So that I think combined with me playing alto saxophone from third to 12th grade was like a weird combination of me learning like the theory side of music with also the passion and energy that comes along with it too. So I think some part of me has always known that my career would have something to do with music, but I never thought that was even a possibility. So mm. I'm very happy that that all ended up working out. Clearly, your parents were supportive of your musical adventures. Oh, 100%. My parents have always been like, go follow your dreams, go do what you want to do. And I think that that is A, just who they are as people, but B, they had gotten married and had my sister when my dad was 19. So they kind of just dove into family life and didn't get to, you know, go to college or like explore their interests. So I think for me, they were like, OK, you need to go fully do it, which is not a lot of support that a lot of people have. So I'm very, very grateful for that. 
Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people who grew up in rural environments typically grew up in mildly conservative and religious backgrounds where their only experience in music may be from the church. Yeah. So I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade, but that was just, I think, more so my parents wanting me to have a better education than our public school system provided. Uh-huh. We're not like a really religious family. Like my grandmother and all my aunts and stuff all go to church on Sundays and do the whole thing. But it was never a huge thing in our household. And I think when I got old enough to make that decision for myself, I was like, OK, this is just not really not for me. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm really happy that we didn't really get influenced by that too much. I used to go to church with my grandmother when I was in high school, but only because she would take me out to breakfast after. (laughs) (laughs) You had a secret breakfast agenda. I was like, I'm here for the pancakes. I don't care about anything else. (laughs) Right. Well, to each his own. To some people, especially living in Nashville, I'm sure you encounter there's a broader range of religious views and I've had many guests who it's a central part of their lives. So like I say, to each his own. So your parents encouraging you to get out in the world. Take me down the the path. How did you arrive at this point at Infrasonic and, and find yourself in Nashville? So I actually originally went to college. I went to RIT in Rochester, New York. I originally went for computer science. And I did that for the first two years that I was enrolled there. But I was also in an all-female acapella group at the time called Vocal Accent. And we were tracking our first EP. And I don't even remember how, but I somehow assisted the tracking engineer, Rick Thomas, on that. And I was like, oh, my God, you can, like, do this as a job? What the hell? (laughs) So (laughs) I ended up switching my majors the end of my sophomore year to audio engineering, which was like a very tiny program that my college offered through the electrical engineering program. Mm. So it wasn't even like a real audio program. But I ended up doing that for the last two years that I was there. And I would spend my summers in Boston going back and forth and just interning at a studio there called Soundtrack Boston. That wasn't music focused. It was more like VO and stuff for movies and commercials and stuff like that. And I was also, well, backing up, I finished my degree, got that. And it's technically I have a dual degree in computer science and audio engineering, and I have a music tech minor. So when I graduated, I moved out to Boston and I lived there and worked at that studio for a little while and was also bartending for Barcelona Wine Bar out there. And there was just like one day that I went into intern at the studio and I just cried in the bathroom and I was like, this is not a healthy environment for me. I'm a go. So I ended up quitting. And that same day, I got a call that Barcelona was opening a restaurant in Nashville and they were like, hey, do you want to go be a trainer and just basically live on the company's dime for two months? And I was like, absolutely. Yes, I do. So I ended up moving down here. Well, I didn't move down here. I ended up spending two months in Nashville training for them and made some good connections. And then when I ended up going back to Boston, I was like, I'm going to move there. And I was in a relationship at the time and he we had been together for like five years, but he was like, I don't want to move. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going. So I just packed everything up and left, which was really scary and hard. But looking back at it now, I'm like, thank God I did that because none of this would have ever happened. And I would probably still be bartending in Boston, which is totally fine. But that's not what I want to do as a career. So 
the first week that I officially lived here, which was like March 2017, I reached out to a local engineer, Tommy Wiggins here in Nashville. And he was like, come on through, we'll have an interview. And I was like, amazing. And then I ended up working for him and assisting him for two and a half years, just random happenstance. So that was very, very lucky. And when I started working for him, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in audio. I just knew I wanted to be in audio. Mm -hmm. So He's an artist as well as an engineer, so I would help him with tracking or setting stuff up for mix, or he he's primarily a mastering engineer. Mm. So he was like, I don't know what you want to do, but I think you have mastering ears. And I was 22, and I was like, okay, whatever, I'll learn how to do that. And then I was like, oh my God, this is the perfect combination of music and like technology. And I love, I have like a puzzle problem-solving brain, which is why I think I was originally drawn to computer science in the first place. So I feel like mastering is such a good balance of the creativity of music with also being technical and problem solving. So I'm really, really grateful that he was kind of the one that pushed me into it and was like, I really think that you would excel at this. So I worked for him for two and a half years and was still bartending at Barcelona in the meantime. I would work with Tommy from 10 to 3, and then I would bartend like 4 to 2 a.m. And I did that every day for like two and a half years. And there was one day I was bartending, and Reed Shippen came in, and he sat at the bar. And he was a regular of mine there, so we had a good rapport. And he knew I was an engineer and was trying to get out of the service industry. And he was like, hey, I have a friend that I really want you to meet. And I was like, oh, my God, okay, cool. This is so exciting. And then a week later... I come to this studio and I'm like, I don't know who I'm going to meet, but I'm just excited to make a connection. And I get here and it's Pete. Mm. And I was like, holy shit. Oh, my God. This dude has worked on some of my favorite records. And now he's just like, hey, what's up? (laughs) My little like New York baby brain was like, oh, my God. So I ended up just like hanging out with Pete for the day, just watching him do stuff. And then I was just kind of like, all right, nice to meet you. See you later. Went on my way and kind of didn't think anything of it. But I was like, man, it would be so awesome to work with him. And then I think maybe just like a month or two later, I was sitting on my couch one day and he called me and he was like, do you want to come work for me? And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And now it's been three years. So I feel like everything I hustled, I worked my ass off. But I also feel like I was super lucky the way that everything planned out. And I'm like not going to discount how smooth that was. Because that would probably never happen again in a million years. But goddamn, I'm happy it did. Yeah. I have to back up. I want to go back to Boston for a second because I want to ask you about a particular thing. Why did you find yourself crying in the bathroom? Why did you feel that that was not the path for you there? So I interned for them for one summer and I had a blast. It was so much fun and everyone there was so nice. And we had like parties. We had a rooftop, everything. And then the next summer I came back and I ended up moving up to being like a paid general assistant instead of an intern. And the way that things kind of shifted power-wise there, my direct person that I reported to was, he was just not receptive and he was very stern and like shut down any ideas that I had. And most of my days there, it was like, hey, there's one swatch of paint in the bathroom that doesn't match the rest of the wall. You need to repaint the entire bathroom. Or like, hey, we're on the fourth floor, but the bathroom on the first floor is flooded. Can you go clean it? Just stupid shit like that where I was like, why am I here? I'm not learning anything. I'm just cleaning up after people who don't care. So I think I just got to the point where I was like, 
if I'm working somewhere, I full-blown work hard. And I just felt like that was not a good use of my time and that I wasn't feeling respected, I mm-hmm. think. I'm a firm believer in do the dirty work and pay your dues, but don't be an asshole to somebody like while they're paying their dues. Right, right. Okay. I just don't, I don't understand that hard ass. I don't know. They're like, I'm going to beat you into the ground until you earn your place mentality. I'm like, fuck that. How about you just be nice to people and then they'll want to work hard for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting because I'm sure the environment that you left there in Boston was so different from Infrasonic. It's laughable. Yeah, it's pretty insane. I tell this story all the time because it makes me laugh. But being at that studio in Boston and feeling like I was like, I can't say anything to anyone. Like, I'm just going to stay in the corner and then clean. And then also working for Barcelona, where even if you work there for like 10 years and a customer has a complaint about you or you say no to someone, they'll fire you on the spot like they don't give a shit. And then <laughs> starting to work with Pete, where he literally was like, if someone's giving you trouble, tell them to fuck off. And I was like, oh, my God, I can stand up for myself here. That's amazing. <laughs> like, I've never had a work environment that's like, no, if someone's disrespecting you. Don't take it. So that for me was, I think, the biggest shock coming from that studio to working here. That first day of hanging out with Pete and watching him do some work, do you feel in retrospect now that what was it about that time that were they testing you to see if you could hang or was there good conversation or did you just sit in the back and be quiet and watch him work? What happened? So I think looking back at it now, it was probably a test to see if I could hang, but I didn't feel that way when I came over. I think it was just such a crazy experience that I even had. And I was just so happy to even be here that I think I think I just sat next to him and he was just mastering stuff and going through it and kind of explaining things to me. And we were chatting back and forth and we just kind of hit it off. Pete and I have, even though there's like a 20 year age gap there or whatever, I feel like Pete and I grew up the exact same way. Like We're both from the hardcore scene, DIY shit. I just feel like we hit it off so quick because we have the same background that I just assumed it was a hang, but it was probably a test. Did they outright say, we want you to master and run the studio? Was it made clear what they wanted? Yeah. So when Pete called me that day, he was like, hey, we had to let, you know, our management go. And I know that that's probably not something that you're interested in doing, but I know that you want to master. So like, would you want to manage? And then you can also master while you're here. And I was like, I will do whatever you need me to do. I will be there. So it was made clear from the beginning that I'd be doing both. And honestly, I love being able to do both because I feel like I need to work with people. That's like a core need that I feel like I have in a workplace. Mm -hmm. But I also love being able to go sit in a room by myself and just put my head down and work on stuff. Tell me about the management of this place. And were you given any direction? Did they just say, this is what's important to us? Did you have your own way of doing it? Tell me about the process of taking that role and making it your own. Yeah. So I actually did event management when I was in college. I was part of our college activities board and I was an event planner and I did management stuff there. So it kind of felt like a pretty seamless transition into doing it here. It's just a lot more moving parts. So when I came in, there was some structure for things like payroll, invoicing, that kind of stuff. 
But I feel like I came in and just was like, none of this makes sense for my brain. I'm going to start over. So I have a pretty different system than how it was when I started here. But I think a lot of it at the core is pretty similar. But I think now that we have so many people and that I'm managing here in L.A. and L.A. has grown a ton since I've been here, too. A lot of new structure has been put in place and we're still kind of working through that every day to just find what is the easiest foundation for 10 engineers versus just having like four or five when we started. Yeah, a lot of moving parts there. I can't even imagine like how your day is structured. Could you run me through a little bit of it? Yeah. So typically what will happen is I'll come in in the first half or three quarters of my day will be me doing admin stuff. So I have scheduled calls with each engineer every day. Oh. And I call them, go over what they're doing for the day, go over any questions that I have or that they have. And I have a very elaborate sticky note set up on my computer (laughs) where I have like each engineer has a sticky and it's all like within a two week window that I put stuff about notes that I have for them or clients that have reached out that I need to reach back out to. And then if I don't hear for someone for like three or four weeks, I put them into a document called client purgatory (laughs) that I can reference if I need to. Because I don't ever want to just delete the information because if they come back a year later, I want to be like, oh, yeah, this is what we talked about last year. But anyway, I start my day going through calls with everyone, clearing up any sort of project notes or anything. And then I go into doing payment reconciliation, doing any sort of other admin stuff, like if we need to write copy for something that we're putting out on social media or if I need to do some sort of vinyl spreadsheet or something. It's just like trying to keep track of a handful of moving parts. But I try to do all my admin stuff in the morning so that I have it all out of the way. And then typically for that last portion of my day, I'll go in Dan's room because Dan and I share a room for Mm -hmm. mastering. So I'll go in there and I'll spend the rest of my day just mastering. So I feel like that's a good system for me to get everything out of the way and then just be able to put my head down and focus in there because I'm the type of person that I hate having my focus broken if I'm working on something. So I'd rather just be like, this is fully done. And then this thing has my full attention. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. And without getting into too much detail here, are you on salary? Is it an hourly type gig? So my management portion is salary, but then my mastering is commission-based. Oh, okay. That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. What are the challenges in handling that many mastering engineers and, and a place like this? There are a lot of obstacles in doing that, especially with L.A., because I'm not physically there with them all the time. Mm -hmm. But I feel like having such a structured schedule where it's like, all right, Nick Townsend, I'm calling you every day at 1230 my time, 1030 your time, and we're going to talk about your day and get it over with. I feel like there needs to be structure in order for it to work instead of like, oh, I'll talk to Nick at some point today. So that's a big thing is that we have a lot of structure that keeps things from falling through the cracks. Here, it's a little bit easier because Pete and Dan and I are within earshot of each other, so I can just yell something at Dan through the wall. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it's a little bit easier having structure. I think if we didn't, it would be a total clusterfuck because there's so many of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having structure. Each engineer has their own spreadsheet with all their projects that we both have access to. So they can mark if something's prepped. I can mark if something's paid. So I think it's just over communication on all sides. So... This would seem to be a challenge to me in that you essentially, you have these two roles, mastering engineer and manager. How do you balance those two? Because I'm sure there's a part of you that wants to have the mastering side become the more prominent, dominant lead thing, lead role of your life. Is that an internal struggle? I don't think at this point for me, it's a struggle. I think it's like, I'm still building up that mastering foundation for myself. So I feel like at this point in my career, I'm still one of the young guns. So I'm like, okay, I'm still learning. I'm going to take the time to learn something new every day. And it's still nice that I have the ability to work with people in the management setting, too, because I feel like that's something that I need. But who knows? Maybe in five, ten years, I'll be like, all right, I got my shit on lock. I'm ready to just do this the whole time. Someone else can deal with the management stuff. Right. But I feel like at this point with me still being one of the young kids, I'm at peace with where I am right now. I was going to say, you're at peace with it, right? Well, you also kind of have the advantage too, because you're getting to really grow the mastering side of your world, but you're also getting the business end of it down too. So that if you ever find yourself running solo, or even if you were just one of the staff there at Infrasonic and a new person takes that position, you know how it works. You know what to look out for and to keep the boat afloat, I like to say. Absolutely. What are the takeaways that you've learned from not only Pete, but I mean, there's so many people there. There's a lot of great lessons to learn because there's a wealth of experience in the group of mastering engineers that are there. Is there any key things that stick out to you that you kind of hold dear to yourself? Absolutely. I feel so lucky that I get to work with people that have been doing this almost as long as I've been alive. That I'm like, oh, yeah. Pete always says, you want to be the dumbest person in the room, you know, like you want to be the one that's not like, I know everything and is 
able to absorb new information. So I'm trying to think of ones that stick out to me the most. One of them is Dave Gardner, one of our L.A. engineers. He does a ton of reissue stuff and like things from old tapes and things that maybe are not in the best condition, but he knows how to work with them. So I ended up getting to remaster a demo for a band that's being put out on a seven inch. And I was like, this is kind of old and it sounds a little wonky. I'm going to call Dave and just ask him for advice. And he was like, let's hop on team viewer. Let's do it together. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so awesome that he was just like, hell yeah, let's do it together. And it turned out amazing. And I would have probably never done the things that he showed me how to do. And with Dan, too, I will always be like, Dan, will you please come listen to this and tell me if it sucks? Because he's in that room with me and knows how he knows how his monitors sound. So he's usually the one that I ask to listen to for stuff in there. But just being able to even just walk into Pete's room and ask him for advice or guidance on something is so insane to me that I still get to do that every day. This dude has worked on some of the coolest shit out there, and I get to walk into his room and be like, hey, can you tell me if this sucks? And he's like, (laughs) yeah, totally. (laughs) But I feel like I will never get over how lucky I am to have all of these resources. You're in a great spot because, I mean, one of the questions that I always get into with my guests is, was there a thing with gear lust, with just spending all the money you make on gear? But I mean you're well equipped there with a room. So there's really no need for you to go buy a bunch of shit, Yeah, which is great. And you're getting a a solid grip on the business end of it. Do you feel like you have a strong aptitude for business and the financial aspects of, of all of this? I think I do now. Starting out, I had no idea. I was like, I am just going to treat this like any sort of management perspective, not even just specifically like an audio business. We have a business management team, so also being able to work with them and being able to ask them questions if I don't understand something or Pete and I having admin meetings, I think that's taught me way more than I ever knew starting out. I don't know. It's hard because I feel like there's still so many different parts of business that I don't know a ton about. Like our engineer, Jay Clark in L.A., him and I just were on the phone talking about taxes and stuff the other day, and he was schooling me on how business taxes work. And I was like, why would I have ever known any of this? But thank you for telling me about it. So I feel like I'm in a better spot than I was, but there's still so much to learn about running a business that I'm like, I feel like there needs to just be a master class on it and I would take it. Yeah. Well, so do you feel like your job is essentially in the, from the management side of it, do you feel that you're essentially the traffic cop and that it's your job to make sure everybody has what they need to do the gig and to make sure that the invoices are paid and the accounts payable for the expenses are paid? Yes. So I I love that. I love being traffic cop lady. I always call myself admin lady. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's essentially like making sure everyone is happy, has what they need, making sure invoices are reconciled, making sure that, you know, if there's anything weird on the website, I take care of that. Just like any little requests typically go to me. And then if I can't figure out out, I go to Pete and ask him for help. But I feel like me kind of being the the mediator for everyone and wrangling everyone to get their work done is is what my day consists of mostly. Is there any part of the job you like more than the other in terms of the management side? Oh, I think my favorite part is just that I get to help people and educate them at the same time. So 
if someone's never gone to a mastering engineer before or has questions about vinyl, has never done that, and they call me, I'm like, I got you. Do not be scared. I'm going to walk you through this whole thing, top to bottom. And then at the end, like, they're just so appreciative and grateful. I don't know. Like, my brain is like, yeah, just be nice to people. That's what you should do. But I feel like that's apparently something hard to find in business. So I feel like it's my responsibility to be kind and guide people through it and educate them at the same time. So anybody that's coming into Infrasonic has got to go through you first. Yes. So a lot of the engineers still have people that they may have worked with before they started working for Infrasonic that will hit them up directly. And a lot of my clients do that too. They'll just call me and ask me to do stuff. But if an engineer gets hit up directly, usually they'll just like immediately loop me in and then I'll take it from there because I want to make sure that the engineers can just come in, do their work and go and not worry about any of the admin stuff, not worry about billing or invoicing or scheduling. I just want them to be able to come in, look at what's on their calendar, get it done and then go home and eat dinner. Okay. So now there's going to be a, a load of people that are going to hear this and they're going to think, I really want somebody like you to run the show for me. So what should, say, other studio owners who are hiring, and regardless, mastering, mixing, tracking, whatever, just studio yeah. owners, what is it that they should be on the lookout for to find somebody who's right for them? So I think this kind of ties into what Pete always says. You can teach anyone how to do anything, but you can't teach someone how to be a good hang. <laughs> so I think it's really just seeing if you can vibe with that person, seeing if they have the same kind of goals and work ethic that you do too. Like I watched my dad my entire life. He still does. He works from like 11 p.m. to like 9 a.m. And he's done that every day of his life since I was a baby. And that in my brain was like, oh, that's how you work. Like you just bust ass every day. And I feel like that's something that comes off in the work that I do and how I present myself. So I think that was kind of what Pete picked up on and why I think I'm a good fit here because I'm self-motivated and I work hard and, you know, it's important to me. Finding someone that can be a good fit for the energy that you have and how you want to present your company. And I think it's also like they have to be self-motivated, like they have to want it. It can't be some half-ass, yeah, sure, I'll do it or whatever. It's like, no, I'm going to do it and I'm going to go full fucking out. So... I'm sure you've spent an enormous amount of time talking with people from other studios and other situations in Nashville because there's so much going on. Have you started to identify, without naming names, but just generically, do you like get red flags when you talk to people and realize, oh, okay, mm, their facility isn't run as well because of this? Like, Are there things that you could identify and relate to not only me, but the audience about like, Here's the things you don't want to do in running a facility. Yeah. First and foremost, like I said, just be kind to people. You have no idea where someone has been, what they've gone through, what they're going through now. If someone's coming to you and looking for guidance, don't be a dick to them. <laughs> like, I think that and the, the pay your dues and being shitty mindset. Like, if people are being, like, big time in you, don't even waste your time with them. And I think, too, a lot of... What I see is that if clients don't get the responsiveness that they want, that's also a red flag where it's like, hey, if I reach out to you for a rate and then I don't hear from you for four days and I hit you up again and I still don't hear from you, but then you hit me up a week later, like that's not dependable communication. Like I'm not going to work with you because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a hold of you. So I think that's the biggest red flag that I've seen is just 
lack of communication skills. I bet you've had clients come in and say, yeah, we were going to go here, but these people can't reply to an email. Exactly. It's that. And it's also like we know our place with the clients. This is their project and it's their baby and it's something that they've put, you know, it could have been 20 years of their life into. If they come and they request a revision, if we send them something, we're not going to be like, yeah, we don't think that that's actually a good idea. It's going to be like, if you want to hear it that way, we're going to do it because it's not our baby. We're going to do whatever the client wants to make them happy. It's not a pride thing for us. We don't give a shit. We just want them to be happy, you know. And I think client focus is also something that I don't see everywhere, which is what we really try to do is just make sure that above all, we're helping people and that people are happy. Client focus, meaning you all are focused on the client's needs at all times. Exactly. So communication and client focus, are there any other red flags that you've picked up on from random conversations in town or rumors or thoughts or ideas and just thought, mm, we're not going to do that at Infrasonic. I don't know. Nothing that I can think of, like, off the top of my head. I think we do our best to mind our own business. What do you mean by that? I don't know. Just, like, I feel like there's a lot of, like, people on the internet looking in forums, whatever, complaining about shit in the audio industry and stuff like that. And I'm like, how about you stop trying to impress everybody and you just shut up and turn on your computer and do your job? Like, why are you spending 30 minutes fighting with someone on Gearspace? Like, just... Put your head down and go away. There you go. Yeah. I've brought it up a couple times in shows since, but I really took a lot away from my conversation with David Kalmuski in that just put your head down and do the work. Mm-hmm. Period. Yes. And then 100%. everything else you can handle after the fact. Exactly. I'm like, there is so much shit happening in the world as is that we cannot get away from. Like, do not go out of your way to d stir up more shit on the internet because you're bored. Go do something else. <laughs> Learn how to knit. I don't know. Do something else with your time. Well, so I want to talk about the mastering side of it now with you. So looking out five, 10 years, do you see mastering as the ultimate path for you? Or are you attracted to tracking or mixing or audio restoration for that matter? Yeah, I think my brain is definitely more mastering focused. I feel like mixing is just something I don't enjoy. Tracking is fun, but like mastering for me is really like the culmination of all my interests in one. And I'm just excited to see where that takes me. Like, I don't know if robots are going to replace us in the mm. next 10 years with like AI mastering, whatever. I don't know. And I guess I should be probably more conscious of where I'll be in 10 years, but I feel like my brain is so like I'll figure it out when I get there. I try to really be in the moment and focused on what I'm doing. And I feel like if I don't do that, it's really easy for my mind to wander and be like, oh, the grass is greener on the other side. What happens if mastering goes away? Like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, I know I will always be okay and I will always figure it out. So all I can say for now is that I definitely see mastering being what I'm doing for the foreseeable future. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you've identified what it is that's a good fit for you, but you're also at a, such a great place with such great mentors as well. Yeah. What is your favorite part about mastering? Because occasionally you might get something in that is really sonically challenged. Do you ever have a fear of attaching your name to something that you're like, oh God, I don't know about this? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a couple times where like, 
I'll be working on something and I'm just like, I just need to walk away because I'm getting real pissed off. I need to just like sleep on it and come back to it. Because sometimes it's like you imagine what it could be in your head and Mm. you're trying everything you can to get it to that point. But sometimes sonically, it just can't get there because that's not how it was mixed and there are limitations. So I feel like I've had to learn how to unfuck my perfectionist brain and just be like, this is literally as far as this is going to go. And that's okay. (laughs) And not being like, I'm going to sit here and torture myself for six hours to try and make it like something it can never be. So I think a lot of the moments I've had are me just being like, I don't love where this is, but I need to just accept that. Yeah, sometimes, though, it does make me a little bit nervous that things go out and I'm like, damn, are people going to listen to this and think I suck? But then I'm like, no, for, you know, for the amount of times that happens, it's like one out of seven. So I have a lot of other stuff out there that I'm really proud of and excited to share. So I try not to focus on the ones that make me question if I'm doing the right job. (laughs) Yeah. But I think everyone has those moments, you know, where they're like, do I suck at this? Where it's like just total imposter syndrome. Am I doing this? Am I faking it? Like, have I, have I fooled everyone else except for myself into thinking that I'm good at this? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm here for a reason and yeah. I work really hard. Plus, you know, it can be challenging when the material that you get is not really up to par. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm, I'm glad that for the most part, the relationships that I have with the clients that I have, if there is something wonky, I can be like, hey, would you mind doing this for me? Thank you. And they understand that it's for the betterment of the project and not me being nitpicky. So how does the billing work? Because, I mean, there's projects that you're going to put way more time in than the client has budgeted for. So could you explain how Infrasonic works in that department in terms of not necessarily the cost, but what is the cost structure? Yeah. So we do it a little bit differently. All of our engineers bill per minute of project material. And then if they need other deliverables, like if they're doing vinyl manufacturing, if they're printing CDs, if they're doing immersive, whatever it may be, those are all additional costs. But the base rate for each engineer is a permanent cost. And that typically involves the client getting the standard 16-bit and 24-bit high-resolution masters for digital distribution. But we're always, our whole mantra is that we want to help people and make it work. So You know, if somebody comes to us and they're like, hey, man, I really want to work with Pete, but I only have X amount of dollars. I'm going to be like, "Okay, cool. Let's do it. Let's make it work. I never want someone to get sticker shock and run away. I always want people to be like, hey, that actually doesn't work for me. Can we do it for this much? And 99 percent of the time we can figure it out. But generally you're billing by program minute. Correct. Okay, And there's different rates for different engineers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then what do you do in the case of you're struggling with or any of the mastering engineers are struggling due to the content, due to the sonic limitations of the content? Do you just eat the time or do you come back and say, you know, hey, we struggle with this and it's going to be more? Yeah, I think it depends on what the issues are. If it's something like the client is wanting three, four, five revision revisions, that is 100 percent built for If it's something where the engineer is just having a hard time with it, we just kind of eat that time because it could be our fault, too. It could be that, you know, one day you're congested and you can't hear anything well or you're like super in your head one day and you're second guessing yourself and you just need to like sleep on it. So if it's something in the initial mastering process that makes it take a little bit longer, we just include that in the time. If it's something that is more client driven, 
that is typically built for. Shifting gears a bit, what about your outside life, work-life balance? How do you maintain a healthy relationship with the other parts of your life? Yeah, so I am a very firm believer in boundaries, which is something I have never been until about this year. <laughs> so <laughs> the last couple of years, I've worked really hard to make sure that I have a healthy work-life balance. And for me, like setting boundaries was everything where I'm like, I'm available from this time to this time. Respect my time. Talk to me within that window. And if not, I'm going to be living my life after, you know, 7 p.m. and making dinner and spending time with my partner, or watching a show or playing a game, whatever. I feel like it's so important for people to set boundaries so that they have their own life still. I feel like it's hard in this industry that people, they want you to be available 24-7 because of all of the last minute emergencies. But it's like, as much as you want to help people and do that, if it's at the detriment of your time and your mental health, it's not worth it. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I'm at on it, where I'm like, after 7 p.m., I'm not checking emails. I'm not answering phone calls if I can help it. I need to just turn off and feel like I can reset for the next day. So a lot of that time for me is either like I have a Nintendo Switch, so I play a lot of Switch games on there <laughs> or... I'll like watch a movie with my roommate or my boyfriend, whatever. Or we'll make dinner together. Like I just try to really make sure that I have time to fully turn off. This business has us all sitting down a lot. Yes. Do you address that outside in terms of health routine? Is there anything that you're focused on for longevity of your health? Yeah. So I have a standing desk. So most of the time I try to stand, but if I'm feeling tired, I'll sit. <laughs> but I typically wake up and every morning before work, I'll go to the gym for like an hour. And I like, I hate cardio, but I'm like, I can lift weights all day long. So I do leg day and shoulders and whatever. So <laughs> I'm a big gym gal too. I like seeing how heavy of things I can lift. I have a tip for you though. If you're not, oh, it's not a complete replacement for cardio, but it's something that I learned about on the show Limitless with Chris oh, Hemsworth yeah. that's on Disney+. Plus. Have you watched that at all? I haven't, but I've heard great things about it. Oh, you got to check it out. There's this one, I don't know if I'm going to get this, the, the numbers right, but basically they were saying in the show, and I've look, looked it up since, and it seems to hold water scientifically, but those who take the last 30 seconds of their shower as ice cold, like around 38 degrees, yeah. That last 30 seconds of fully immersing yourself in the freezing cold water, which just heads up for everybody, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, does It does a number of things to the body, and I can't possibly name all those things, but look it up, anti-inflammation and doing some things physiologically in the body that really kind of make the body just go, hey, okay. Yeah. I always see like videos of those people that have the like ice baths outside of their house and they wake up and first thing they do is dip in it. And I'm like, that looks so horrible, but it's probably so helpful. Do you know who does that is Lidge Shaw, my brother from another podcast on Recording Studio really? Rockstars. Lidge has a bathtub in his backyard. And I was always like, dude, you are fucking crazy. <laughs> but then I started to look into this and I was like, maybe he's not that crazy. And he's in great yeah, shape. Like, he's too, on so to I, something I, now. He's on to something. <laughs> Anyways, one of the benefits is, is that it helps with the cardiovascular system. It's not a complete replacement, but it's, it's a, a good adjunct to whatever routine you got going. So, so that's my non-audio tip for the day. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, if I do cardio stuff, it's like I'll do like a just walk on like the treadmill incline and watch like a YouTube video. So I'm like, oh, man, 30 minutes. All right. <laughs> 
Yeah, but if you want to watch a, a really cool show, that Limitless with Chris Hemsworth is very entertaining, but also very, if you have any agenda to live past the average age, like I always say, I'm going to live to 105. That's my goal. Amazing. So I, I've been watching this show and I'm like, oh, these are some good tips for getting to 105. Yeah. <laughs> Making a to-do list. Yeah. How to live longer. Well, so I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your landing page there on the Infrasonic site so people can check you out and obviously reach out audience to Raylan and the Infrasonic team if you're looking to have something mastered. Great people there. You know I've interviewed a ton of them and there's still a few more to go and they will they will eventually come on the show. But Raylan, I really want to thank you. I appreciate your time and your candor with everything and, and really kind of opening it up, especially in the management side. And I hope that everybody got some good tips from that. So appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, you take care. You too. Thanks so much. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Raylan Janicki here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, if you want to help out the show, the best thing you can do is head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. And if you want to write up something, you can do that too. But uh, the five-star review really helps the show in a number of ways. So please take the time to do that when you have the chance. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.